If you would tonight, turn to Micah chapter 5. Micah chapter 5. Most of us are familiar with verse number 2 of Micah chapter 5, which is the specific prophecy of where the Messiah would be born. This is the only place in the Old Testament scriptures that predict where the Messiah would be born. Now, we do know from other scriptures that the Messiah would be in the line of David. And Bethlehem is David's city. That is where David the king was from. And so one might could infer that that's where the Messiah would be born as well, but it's not stated specifically anywhere else except here in Micah 5, verse 2. Most of you probably remember in the Christmas story, in the Gospels, when the wise men come to King Herod in in the Gospel of Matthew, and they speak of this star that they've seen, and they speak of a king that they have come to worship, the king of the Jews. And Herod calls for the scribes, for the teachers of the Old Testament law, and says, where does the law say the Christ is to be born? And they come back with Micah 5, verse 2. They say, this is where the Messiah is to be born, in Bethlehem. We're familiar with verse number 2, but a lot of times we know these verses individually, but we don't know where they come from. We don't know the context in which they arise. And I thought it would be helpful for us to, to look at Micah 5 in its entirety and see the context that this prophecy comes out of on the birth of the Messiah. And the context of Micah chapter 5 is one of despair. It's one of darkness. It's one in which the people of Judah are living in fear. They're living in distress. They're being oppressed by enemies. The Assyrian army is marching on them. The Assyrian army, under the leadership of Sennacherib, had gone through much of Judah, had destroyed many of its villages and towns, and was on its way to Jerusalem to surround it and to siege it. And so there was a lot of fear. There was a lot of uncertainty in the land of Judah at this time. And so it was a dark time. It was a time in which they needed hope. It was a time in which they needed some light to be able to look to. And through the Holy Spirit, God gives a prophecy that gives exactly that. It's a a prophecy of hope, a prophecy of light, that in the midst of this darkness, you can hope for the future because there is a king who is coming. There's a righteous king, a shepherd who is coming to to guide and to care for his people. And so Micah 5 is the prophecy of a promised king that will come from the city of Bethlehem. Micah chapter 5, verse 1 says, Marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. 
He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely. For then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. And he will be our peace when the Assyrians invade our land and march through our fortresses. We will raise against them seven shepherds, even eight commanders, who will rule the land of Assyria with the sword, the land of Nimrod with drawn sword. He will deliver us from the Assyrians when they invade our land and march across our borders. The remnant of Jacob will be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which do not wait for anyone or depend on man. The remnant of Jacob will be among the nations in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among flocks of sheep, which mauls and mangles as it goes, and no one can rescue Your hand will be lifted up in triumph over your enemies, and all your foes will be destroyed. In that day, declares the Lord, I will destroy your horses from among you and demolish your chariots. I will destroy the cities of your land and tear down all your strongholds. I will destroy your witchcraft, and you will no longer cast spells. I will destroy your idols and your sacred stones from among you, You will no longer bow down to the work of your hands. I will uproot from among you your Asherah poles when I demolish your cities. I will take vengeance in anger and wrath on the nations that have not obeyed me. Let's bow in prayer before the Lord. Father, we thank you for the few moments that we have tonight to look to the prophet Micah to read these words that he spoke some 2,600 years ago. Lord, I pray that we would learn from this passage how great and mighty you are, how merciful and kind you are to your people. And Lord, help us to receive comfort and encouragement and hope from these words that were spoken to your people so long ago. Father, bless this time, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Verse 1 of this passage starts with Israel's humiliation. It starts in the historical context in which Israel was at that time in Micah's day. And it was a time in which Israel was not powerful, in which Israel was not the leader in that area of the world. In fact, Israel was under a lot of pressure, under a lot of fear because of the strength of the nations around them, in particular, the nation of Syria which was expanding its borders, which was attacking other nations, and was moving outward and swallowing up peoples inside of its empire. And so Israel is not strong at this time. And a large reason is is because they had disobeyed God. They disobeyed the Lord, and so God's hand of chastening was on them. A part of God's chastening was to use the Assyrians to humble them. And verse 1 says that they would be humbled. It says, Marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. That's probably referring to the siege of the Assyrians led by Sennacherib around Jerusalem. You can read about it in the book of Kings. You can also read about it in Isaiah 35 and 36. And so Assyria came and surrounded Jerusalem and basically gave Jerusalem an ultimatum. 
and said, surrender to us or be completely destroyed. And so they were humiliated. They were on the verge of being conquered. And at the end of this verse, it says, they will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. That is the ultimate degradation, the ultimate humiliation. And so the king of Judah at that time, the ruler of Jerusalem, he would be struck in the face as a sign of humiliation and shame. And to show that he was not the great ruler. He was one who was under someone else and had to grovel at the feet of the one in power. And so it was a very humiliating time in the life of Israel, a time of fear, a time in which they needed hope. And so the prophet Micah reveals to them that hope, that there would come a time when a time of glory, a time of exaltation would arise within the land of Judah. But ironically, it would not come from Jerusalem. It would come from the little village of Bethlehem, some five, six miles away from Jerusalem. And so verse number two says of Bethlehem, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, And this is specifically describing the location of Bethlehem and identifying it as the Bethlehem of David's family line. And so Bethlehem, it says, though you are small among the clans of Judah. And so it's it's talking about how even though Bethlehem was really nothing of any regard, it was small. It was a small village. The only thing that it was really known for was the fact that David was from there. That's the only thing that Bethlehem was famous for. And if you remember the story of David, David was the smallest and the youngest of his family, wasn't he? And so when the prophet Samuel came to choose the next king of Israel, Samuel was thinking, hey, I'm going to choose the oldest, the tallest, the strongest. And God kept telling him, no, it's not this one. It's not this one. And he got all the way down to the youngest, to the smallest, the one who would be the least that anyone would consider to be the next king of Israel. And that's the one that God anointed. And, and so that idea of God choosing the small, choosing the weak, is exactly what's happening now with Bethlehem again. Even though Bethlehem is a small village, really nothing significant happens there. Everything happens a few miles away in Jerusalem. God says, Bethlehem, out of you will come a ruler. Out of you will come one who will rule my people, Israel. And his origins are from of old, from ancient times. And so verse 1 is humiliation, but God through Micah is promising a time of exaltation in which something small and weak would become a place that was glorious and was known for the birthplace of the greatest person who ever walked the face of this earth. From humiliation to exaltation. And when this king comes, he will rule over Israel. He will not be like this humiliated king that was struck on the cheek, this humiliated king that is bowing in subservience to the king of Assyria. No, he will be one who will rule in glory and in power In fact, he is going to be a unique king because it says his origins are from of old, from ancient times. 
Now, one way of understanding that is sometimes when these words are used in the Old Testament, all it's doing is it's attaching a, a line of continuity, basically, from one event back to its historical roots in another event. And that could be what's in view here, in that when this king comes, this Messiah, this anointed king, his line, his roots, if you will, can be traced back to ancient times and history in the history of Israel. And so it could be saying he is going to be connected with that promise to David of Bethlehem of so long ago. And that fact that God's covenant with David is still going to be fulfilled. That covenant in which God said to David, I'm going to keep someone from your family on the throne of Israel. He established David's dynasty. But I think maybe something even beyond that is meant here. Maybe pointing to the fact that this coming king is not an ordinary human king. But that his origins stretch beyond human history and stretch back to eternity past. He is going to be more than just a human. He's going to be the divine human king. But this king, this exalted king, is coming. And there's hope in that. In the meantime, though, Israel is going to experience emptiness. It's going to experience waste, devastation, poverty, oppression but with the expectation of hope. Verse 3 says, Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. In other words, verse 3 is saying, there's going to be a time of emptiness, of abandonment in Israel, until sometime in the future. And probably the best way of understanding that is understanding the gap in time between the last king of Judah, who was in the line of David, when they were taken off into captivity in Babylon, and then when they came back home from Babylon, they really did not have a king like they had before in the line of David. And so there was a gap of time in Jerusalem, in Israel, in which there was no true ruling king in the line of David until the king of kings would come. Until the one born of a woman in labor. And one possible way of understanding that is that that's referring to Mary in the future. It could be referring in a kind of a literary way to the people of Israel giving birth to the Messiah. But I think it's probably more directly to be interpreted as Mary, as the mother of this coming king. So there's this future king who is coming. But until then, there's going to be a time of emptiness. So there's emptiness, but there's still expectation, right? Because they're still looking forward to something. There is a son who is going to be born. And then verse 3 says, And the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. What is that referring to? Probably it's referring to the the idea of reunion, of a, a regathering of God's people. 
And throughout the scriptures in the Old Testament prophets, as well in the New Testament, you see this idea of a regathering of God's people in the age to come. In which God's scattered people across the world are brought back again. In the context of the Old Testament, the prophets speak of a reunification of Israel, of Judah and Israel, the two divided kingdoms reunited under one David-like king, who is Jesus the Messiah. But we know also from the New Testament that that reunification, that regathering of God's people at some point in the future will not only be of Jews, but will also include us as Gentiles in that regathering of peoples. So when the brethren return and join the Israelites, probably pointing to this regathering, which is interesting, isn't it? Because what it does is verse 3 kind of fuses together in one picture the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. Because the first coming of Jesus is when he was born of a woman in labor, right? That's what, that was his first coming in Bethlehem of Ephrata, which this prophecy is describing. But then the last part of the verse and the rest of it that describes his rulership, his kingship, that's looking to his second coming, isn't it? And so it brings both of the visions together in one. And so there is a time of emptiness, a time of abandonment, but yet still expecting something to come in the future in hope. Then we see in verse 4 a description of this coming king, and he is going to be a righteous shepherd king who will rule over his flock. Verse 4 says, He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. This he who will stand and shepherd his flock is none other than the ruler who will come out of Bethlehem. That was described in verse number 2. The one who would be born of this woman in verse number 3. When he comes, he will be like a loving, caring, faithful shepherd who watches over his people. He will not be like a lot of the kings of Israel and Judah who were only looking out for themselves and who were selfish and who were arrogant. And they did not take their responsibility seriously as, a, as God's representative ruling over his people. But this coming king, Jesus, the Messiah, he will be like a loving shepherd caring for his people, leading them to green pastures, bringing them to still waters. He will be one who will do this in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. In other words, he will come and do this in a divine way, under divine power. And we know that Jesus did that because he was the Son of God, but also anointed by the Holy Spirit of God throughout his entire ministry on earth. And so he performed his ministry in the strength of the Lord, and he did it all for the glory of the name of God, didn't he? And they will live securely. That is God's people. They will live securely, a time of peace, a time of shalom, a time of prosperity, in which this ruler rules over them, and there is the absence of warfare, and there is sustenance. There's provision for all of God's people. Because his kingdom will reach to the ends of the earth. Again, that's pointing to the second coming of Jesus, isn't it? So we have his first coming from Bethlehem, but we also have his second coming in which he rules to the ends of the world 
and all of his people are gathered under his loving rule. In verses 5 through 9, we see the theme of God delivering his people from oppression. Israel is currently an oppressed people in Micah's day. They're under the oppression of enemies. They're under the oppression of armies. And verses 5 through 9 describe God's deliverance of his people and coming to their aid. Verse 5 says, He, that is this coming ruler from Bethlehem, He will be our peace when the Assyrians invade our land and march through our fortresses. We will raise against them seven shepherds, even eight commanders. That's a literary device in Hebrew in the Old Testament. You see it sometimes in the prophets. You see it a lot of times in Proverbs. And the idea of of a number plus another number is the idea of putting emphasis on the last number. And so it's seven, even eight. And so the idea is on the eighth. And the idea of eight is the idea of perfection plus one. And the the idea of seven shepherds or eight commanders is that under the rule of this Messiah King, there will be plenty of good under shepherds, if you will, who will be able to lead and guide God's people under the authority of this righteous shepherd king. Plenty of under shepherds who will do what is right. That's a big contrast to Micah's day in which you didn't have righteous kings. You didn't have righteous and just under shepherds. Instead, you had people who were oppressing others, who were taking others for granted, who were manipulating other people, who were underhandedly cheating other people. But in this ruling time, when Messiah, when Jesus will rule, there will be plenty of noble and ethical and righteous people who will be able to under-shepherd God's people. In verse 6 it says, He will rule the land of Assyria with the sword, the land of Nimrod with drawn sword. Nimrod, that is a reference all the way back to Genesis. And Nimrod is viewed as the father, kind of the, the ancestor of the Assyrian Babylonian peoples. And so essentially what this is saying is when God comes to the aid of his people and he rescues his people, they they will no longer be under the yoke of oppression of these Assyrian Babylonian rulers. God will deliver them. The remnant of Jacob will be in the midst of many peoples. Who's the remnant? When God allows the Assyrians to attack, or even later in Judah's history, when he allows the Babylonians to come and destroy Jerusalem and carry people off into Babylon, there are many who died. There are many who did not survive. But when God brings them back home after the captivity and they return, they will be a remnant. They will be those who are rescued, saved by the grace of God, and allowed to return to the land. And so in talking about the remnant saved by the grace of God, this is saying that God's remnant, that is his chosen people, they will live in the midst of the peoples of the world and they will fulfill two functions that are described in a metaphorical way in verses 7 and 8. In verse 7, they're described like dew or showers on the grass. Now, what does dew or showers on the grass provide? It provides 
water, provides nourishment. It provides what plants and grass need to grow, right? And so in verse 7, it's the idea of God's people being a healing, life-giving influence among all the peoples of the world. In verse 8, it uses the, the imagery of a lion in the midst of other animals, a lion in the midst of a flock of sheep. Now, what does that convey? It conveys the strength, the power, the victory of God's people over other nations. But both of them have God's people as the central focus in the midst of the nations. One as life-giving, the other perhaps as judgment-giving. Both being used by God as His instruments among the nations. And verse 9 says, Your hand will be lifted up in triumph over your enemies, and all your foes will be destroyed. And so God will deliver His people. He will deliver them. He will rescue them from the yoke of oppression of Assyria and Babylon. He will put them in the midst of the nations to be like dew on the grass and giving life sustenance. He will put them in the midst of the nations to be like a lion having victory over the nations. And verse 9 describes God as delivering them ultimately from their foes. In other words, there is coming a time in which even though now you are under oppression, even though now it looks like things are dark and discouraging, there's coming a time in which God will deliver you. And God will give you peace and prosperity and security in the midst of all these nations that surround you. Very different from their current situation. So it's much hope and expectation. But in order for all this to happen... And in the fulfillment of it, there will be a purification and a renewal of God's people. One of the things that we see in Scripture is that when we come to the end of days and we come to the fulfillment of many of these prophecies in which Jesus returns and he establishes a kingdom in the world, One of the things that we see in Scripture over and over and over again is that in this kingdom of the Messiah, this new heavens and new earth, this realm of peace and shalom, you know what will not be there? Sin. Sin will not be there. Unrighteousness will not be there. Hatred will not be there. Idolatry will not be there. And so in describing this future hopeful reign of a coming king from Bethlehem, the rest of the passage describes the spiritual renewal that God will do among his people. So he's not just going to restore them and give them physical blessings. He's also going to renew them and purify them spiritually so that they will be his righteous people. And so verses 10 through 15 describe what God will do to purify and renew his people. Verse 10 says, In that day, declares the Lord, I will destroy your horses from among you and demolish your chariots. You say, that sounds cruel. Why would God do that? It's because that's where they were putting their trust. Almost everything in verses 10 through 15 about God purifying his people is about removing their idols from their lives. 
removing those things in which they were putting their trust. And one of the things that they were putting their trust in was their own might. And a lot of nations in the history of the world have put their hope and their trust in their military strength and their might. And God is saying, in that day, in that kingdom, when my Messiah will rule, you're not going to need any horses and chariots and armies. And because I will be there. And you can put your trust and your hope in me. And so he's, he's taking away anything that they might be tempted to put their hope in, to put their trust in or their security in. And he's saying, don't put your security in your armies. God's going to take that away. And then in verse 11, he says, I'm going to destroy the cities of your land and tear down all your strongholds. Again, speaking to their strength, walled cities that were defended with walls, strongholds or towers, fortresses that would be used to defend the cities, or even the wealth and the might that is represented by those cities. God is saying, I'm taking that away because I don't want your trust in those things. I don't want you to trust in your wealth or in your might. Verse 12, he says, I'm going to take away your witchcraft. There's no more witchcraft, no more casting of spells. And this was against the law of the Mosaic law anyway. There there was supposed to be none of this in Israel anyway, but yet there was much rebellion going on in the land of Israel. And a part of it was false worship, false divination, witchcraft. And God says, in that day when I purify my people, there will be no more of that wickedness. No more of false ways of trying to manipulate your circumstances or your environment. No more false ways of divination, of trying to find out the future or find out what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to come to me, that's what God says. Don't try to figure out these things through witchcraft or through black magic or dark arts. You're supposed to come to me. Put your trust in God. Verse 13, I will destroy your idols and your sacred stones from among you. You will no longer bow down to the work of your hands. I will uproot from among you your Asherah poles when I demolish your cities. So God is saying, I'm going to take away your military strength, your armies. I'm going to take away your cities, your wealth, and your defenses. I'm going to take away these other things that you're putting your hope in, like witchcraft and divination to manipulate your circumstances. I'm going to take away your idols and these things that you bow down and worship. I'm going to wipe all of that away so that you will be a purified people and so that your faith and your hope will be in me alone. That's what God is doing. He is renewing and purifying his people. And the passage ends with a renewed promise of God's justice that will come on the nations that have disobeyed God and on the nations that have oppressed his people. Verse 15 says, I will take vengeance in anger and wrath on the nations that have not obeyed me. In other words, God will be just. He will be just. He will do what is right. He will fix the wrongs. And those who were wicked, he will judge. He will punish. And he will come to the deliverance of his people. And they will dwell in a kingdom that stretches from one corner of the earth to the other. And they will be under the reign of a perfect, loving, righteous shepherd who will rule over them with love and with justice, and with perfect righteousness forever.
ever. That's the hope that Micah presented to his people. They were in oppression. They were in bondage. They were being forced into subservience to more powerful nations and peoples. And God is saying, I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to rescue you. And as I deliver you and rescue you, I will also purify you. And I will make you into the kind of people that I desire for you to be. And now we know from a New Testament perspective that we are being renewed. We are being purified through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, aren't we? We are being saved, redeemed, rescued by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are being day by day renewed to be conformed to the image of Christ. And one day when Jesus does come back, we will be ultimately glorified. And we will be the kind of people that God desires for his people to be. And we will enter into a kingdom in which there is no more sin, no more evil, no more crying, no more pain, no more enemies, no more armies, but only peace and joy and shalom for all time. That is what Micah prophesies and gives his people for hope. And this hope, here's the great thing about this passage. Much of this hope that was given to the people of Israel 2,700 years ago is still our hope today. And we live on the side of the, the other side of the first coming of Jesus. And we can see how Micah 5 verse 2 was fulfilled to every iota, every jot and tittle, right? Micah 5 2, it was fulfilled just as Micah predicted it. So if that's how exact the prophecy of Micah 5 2 was fulfilled in the first coming, doesn't that give us certainty and hope for the fulfillment of the rest of his prophecy, which much of it is still to come, even from our day and our perspective. And so put your hope in God. Put your hope in this child who was born of a woman in Bethlehem of Ephrata, small little town that was of no regard, and yet God blessed it with glory. May your hope be in that shepherd king. From Bethlehem. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father, we thank you so much for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he came in history and he was born of the Virgin Mary in the little town of Bethlehem, just as your word predicted that he would. He lived a life of humility. He came from a little town of Nazareth in Galilee another town of no regard. And yet he came and he served and he lived his life for others and he gave himself to them in service, in ministry, in teaching, in healing, and then ultimately he gave himself to the death of the cross. Father, we thank you for the coming of Jesus. We thank you that he has risen again. We thank you that he now is ruling at your right hand from which he will come again and receive us unto himself. Father, we look forward to the full fulfillment of what Micah 5 reveals to us, that there will be a time of peace and of rest and of prosperity in the reign of Messiah, such that we could not even imagine. Lord, may our hope, may our faith be in him. 
And Lord, thank you for that great hope that we have to look forward to. And we pray this all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.